Enter stage left, Simon Garfield. He's written for any number of uh, venerable publications like The Independent, The Observer and The Guardian. He's also penned an eclectic collection of non-fiction books over the years, including On the Map, his hymn to cartography, Just My Type, a sort of festival of fonts, and To the Letter, a celebration of the lost art of letter writing. And it was to, to discuss that book that he popped onto the Little Wireless program uh, almost a decade ago now. His latest is All the Knowledge in the World. And uh, Simon takes us on another wild ride charting the extraordinary history of all the encyclopedias from ancient Greece to, uh, well, to Wikipedia. I'm delighted to uh, welcome Simon back to the program from his home in London. It's been a while. Simon, I want to start by asking you a sort of trivial pursuits question. What was the largest encyclopedia ever proposed? Well, um, hello, Philip. Nice to talk to you again. The largest one was something that was commissioned or rather ordered from a Chinese emperor in uh, the 15th century called the Yongle Dadian, although it has lots of uh, other names as well. And it was one of these sort of impossible ambitions where uh, the, the emperor said, I want everything everywhere all at once. And uh, he ordered uh, a huge amount of civil servants to go all over the world or talk to as many people as he could and gather as much information. It turned out that the encyclopedia that, that they came back with was a, a total mess, um, too big to be <laughs> printed. Uh, there were some fragments of handwritten elements of it uh, all over the world, especially in um, China and various universities. And I can't tell you uh, even one thing that they said, but that, that was sort of uh, more of a kind of uh, autocratic uh, order than uh, any attempt to, to, to sort of really learn anything. You know, your work reminds me of a, well, a partial namesake in, in Simon Winchester, who's an old pal of mine. That dictionary or that encyclopedia didn't make the cut in The Man Who Loved China. So uh, I must alert him to his, uh, well, to his lack of scholarship. Now, many of your books are about, uh, well, maps, miniatures, the art of letter writing. Hark back to lost worlds. Is it fair to say your passion for encyclopedias is also in that category? Um, yes, it is, I think. I mean, I, I, it's odd because I didn't set out to, to sort of write books that were kind of connected in that way um but i've i kind of realized since that my parents lived their whole lives in a analog world and my kids live all their their entire world in a digital world and i'm somewhere in between so i i came up um just with books pre-internet and obviously now we're all internet and so i kind of thought well i'm in a fairly actually unique, unique position to to look at um what we had before and what we have now so you're, you're right i mean with my maps book the idea was you know here we are we can put our sat nav in our in our cars and go anywhere and not really know where we've been so i thought well actually we are losing our sense of of, of place and 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 maybe you know direction finding and uh atlases in general so interesting to look back back at that with with type with fonts i kind of thought well we all have this 
pull-down menu on our screen, but where do these typefaces come from? We've we've become very familiar with, you know, things like Comic Sans and Baskerville and 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 Garamond and all of these. Um, and we didn't know anything about them. So where where do these come from? And with with encyclopedias, it's very interesting because it began with me using Wikipedia all the time. And if you use Wikipedia a lot, occasionally, maybe once a month now, you will get a little banner on top. I'm sure you're familiar with this. Um, well, yes, I, I've been so guilt-stricken I signed up as a donor. <laughs> I think that's what they do. They basically say, no, you've used Wikipedia now. Send us, you know, two dollars or two pounds or whatever you can afford, and um, and 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 please keep us, you know, free of uh, of sponsors and and adverts and any other influence. And that's the great wonder of Wikipedia that they have managed to do that. So I gave classically. I thought, oh well, you know, how ungenerous can I be on on this thing? So I gave ages ago. I gave them two pounds, like you, a kind of kill. I mean, not a lot of money, it must be said. Um, but obviously, they then they have your email and they don't let you go. So then I got another email signed by um, a woman called Catherine Ma, who was then the uh, the director of Wikipedia. Obviously, not a personal email. I uh, said, um, "Thanks so much. Can you give some more?" Blah blah. So I thought, well, I would write to her, um, you know, <laughs> with a kind of journalistic magpie mind that I have. I said, "Well, she's written to me. Why don't I write to her?" So I wrote to her. It was a, it was coming up to the twentieth anniversary of Wikipedia. So I thought I would write a piece about that, and we chatted on Zoom because I I was Wikipedia was based in. San Francisco. So I had plans to go out there. Then obviously we had the pandemic. So um, I, I watched her eat her husband's or a partner's made sourdough bread being San Francisco. And we had a great chat. And then I kind of thought, well, OK, this is great. But but, you know, how did we get to this point? Uh, and one of the bits of research I found is that when Wikipedia began, they based their knowledge very much in terms of trying to get a lot of material instantly online they used the 1910 stroke 1911 encyclopedia britannica and i thought okay well this is interesting so they're still using knowledge of 100 years ago that was you know out of copyright um and i thought well okay um this this clearly is an interesting story what are we losing just by going online Simon, I sort of collect encyclopedias. I've got the, of course, the facsimile of the uh, the first Britannica, two lovely old volumes. Uh, an Australian philanthropist, Dick Smith, funded an Australian encyclopedia of loving memory. I and I've still got so many Encyclopedia Britannicas, but they they tend to sort of prop up tables these days. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you should see my office um, as well. But I'm glad to hear you've got them because the the experience I had uh, in the main was people sort of clearing their shelves, saying, "Well, why do we need these things anymore? You know, we've we've, we've got everything we need, not even on our computers, on our phones. You know, there's yeah. a Wikipedia app, and, and obviously we can get everything." from um google as well and and so people thought these are taking up way too much but but us us clever people philip obviously know that there's a lot more um that you can get from uh, old encyclopedias and it's partly i think you know uh, you get to a certain age and you like still reading things on 
paper. Um, but encyclopedias tell you so much more. Um, the, the, the main thing, I think, um, that we lose when, when we sell them on eBay or, or, or give them to charity shops, or even worse, I've seen people burning their encyclopedias, is this sense that history is kind of, is, is, is lost. So what we knew about the world in 1910, 1940, Um, you know, for instance, were commissioned by the Encyclopedia uh, Britannica to, to write as experts in uh, layperson's lay terms um, about what they knew about their... Simon, their, when does this great saga begin? What was the first attempt to produce an encyclopedia? Well... I mean, like everything else, sort of everything goes back to to the ancient uh, Greeks and the ancient uh, Romans. So, the Greek uh, term for encyclopedia is how we how we get our, our word now. It was enkiklios pedia, which mean which means learning within the circle or an all round education. So, a few years before um, the, the Vesuvius in, in say, 79 AD, Pliny the Elder would try and gather really all the all the knowledge that he could. In the same way, the uh, the Greeks uh, made um, incredible atlases by gathering all the information that they could from um, anyone who who came into their country, uh, anyone who came to Athens was kind of quizzed about what they knew about the world. And it was it was sort of similar with Pliny, that he tried to um, gather everything that was seen as important in the, that world. So um, it wouldn't necessarily be things that we um, considered important today. It would be things like rhetoric. Were, were very, very important. So there would be huge entries on that. And it wasn't the encyclopedia that we understood now. It wasn't alphabetical, but it was a huge kind of multi-volume set of, of kind of everything that they knew. I, I love your story about how his nephew, Pliny the Younger, talks about his uncle as a workaholic travelling through Rome. He'd pay a companion to read to him as he walked, having a bath. He'd be dictating his latest entries. Yeah, exactly, an early workaholic. <laughs> um, but I think, I mean, after that, what happened was that the, the encyclopedia as we sort of understand it now uh, in terms of an alphabetical cross-referenced book written by experts um, began um, in London in um, 1728. Uh, a man called Ephraim Chambers was a sort of, he could make the, the claim pre-Britannica to, to having made the first. It was only two volumes. Um, and he was a kind of shameless man, who a shameless editor who basically didn't 
think it was very important to write anything original at all but it was just to try and his attempt was just try to try and gather as much as he could uh from other books so he, he was, was a cut and paster he was an absolute cut and paster and shamelessly so in his introduction he said well look these are the guys uh they got their knowledge from somewhere and i'm getting my knowledge from them and uh, isn't this great because now you don't have to buy their books and um, he thought there were already in 1728 too many books in the world uh so he said all you got to do is buy mine and his was called the cyclopedia without the without the end and then after that, it went to, to France. So the, 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 the big multi, the first big multi-volume in Encyclopedia um, was um, compiled by two Frenchmen and, uh, called Diderot and D'Alembert. Um, and that was a sort of first 30-plus um, volume set just pre the, the revolution called the Encyclopédie. Um, and then that was sort of copied by the by the Encyclopedia Britannica. So, you know, knowledge, as we know, um, you know, sort of grows on knowledge and, and, and the, the development of the Encyclopedia was the same. Before we go back to the Britannica, it's fascinating to me that uh, at the time in France, people were paying, well, what would be $12,000 today for the Encyclopedia. Yeah, only wealthy people could obviously afford it, and the aristocrats would ensure that they had as many good entries about themselves or about the things that they believed in. But yeah, encyclopedias have always been, printed encyclopedias, have always been a fairly exclusive and expensive um, pursuit until I'd say, <clears throat> I don't know, the 19... 1920s 1930s when people thought actually we can we can take this out of the universities out of libraries and try and sell them um to people who probably can't afford them and then you know as we know i can avail you uh, fill it with with horrific stories which i'm sure you remember of encyclopedia salesmen calling round or calling round to your parents trying to sell them something that they weren't really sure they wanted or could afford or could afford exactly yeah i didn't realize the encyclopedia britannica could well have been called the encyclopedia edinburgh yeah so it began there um uh, the, the subs- subscribers who who paid up in advance or said they would pay for the set in advance and had their names inscribed at the beginning of the book were known as a, a society of gentlemen and they were in edinburgh and edinburgh at that point was well you could argue now as well was you know a a, a leading place for academics and uh, industry as well um the medical world up there was was making sort of extraordinary advances at the university and so it began two enterprising publishers thought that this is not only something that we can give to the world in in terms of um you know academic value but also we can actually make a bit of cash from from this um and they you know they they were they were publishers first and encyclopedia men next and so and they found that you know i mean it was trial and error because they were they were doing something fairly new at this point still one of them uh, one about, of them made a few bob by engraving dog collars and the other was a son of a wig maker exactly yeah so that gives you an idea of of sort of you know where they were 
where they were kind of arming from. And they were they, they thought, actually, you know, this wasn't, as they found, a, a, a get-rich-quick scheme. But uh, they thought that, uh, you know, we, we have a big enough market here and we have enough world experts uh, to make this uh, work. Um, and, 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 of course, they did. And they moved their sales efforts to the bookshops of London, and where the first Britannica sold its entire 3,000 print run within a few months. Yeah, and, uh, you know, then they realised, well, actually, we can go on. I mean, what they found hard, of course, was was having to constantly update because, um, you know, the, the world was was changing incredibly rapidly um, when they launched the, the dawn of the uh, Industrial Revolution. Uh, we were, um, you know, we, we, for, for, for Britain, it was the very early days of uh, empire, so we were finding out all sorts of kind of new things about the world. And so they realised, well, actually, hang on a minute, we have to sell these copies if we want to make any money and then have the next edition and the next edition after that. And then they got more and more ambitious and uh, the the volumes got um, larger and larger and then they began saying well actually you know who who are the world who who are the, who are the world experts in here not just the um the, the you know the experts in Edinburgh and then they began to cast their their net more widely for their um, contributions my guest is Simon Garfield when we're talking about his book all the knowledge in the world, the extraordinary history of the encyclopedia. Tell me the extraordinary history of William Smelly. William Smelly uh, was the first editor of uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, a slightly, he was he was absolute um, sort of journeyman editor. He he was another. Uh, originally another sort of cut and paste uh, as much as he could. And then he wrote quite, quite a lot of it himself, but you never knew quite how much he was actually writing, how many, how many experts he consulted, because he was an incredible boozer and very uh, unreliable as uh, the first editor. And he only lasted for uh, the first edition and then uh, the uh, publishers got in more uh, experienced men. Um, but he did the... Job. He was like a caretaker manager, I guess. I'm going to quote you at this point. Smelly appears to have been rescued from a possible life of debauchery and alcoholism by the twin redemptive forces of education and remuneration. That's right. Um, but uh, so, yeah, he was happy to get the money. Uh, but he did end his, his days basically back in the taverns of um, Ed- Edinburgh and um, saying, um, I-, I imagine saying, uh, oh, you know, that first encyclopedia, I was the editor of that. And then his colleagues who were other boozers with no doubt say, yeah, tell me another one. You talked about encyclopedia entries being in alphabetical order, but that was not always a given. It's an interesting question now, because you look at Wikipedia and you consult that, and that's not in any form of alphabetical order. You think, well, in a way, isn't that a very odd way of actually ordering uh, knowledge. Um, you kind of think, well, shouldn't it be in a thematic way? Um, but they found that both commercially um, and uh, academically, that that seemed to be the easiest way of doing it if you wanted to find anything, uh, because obviously these uh, volumes were incredibly huge and incredibly hard to index. Uh, and so you would, if you wanted 
to look at um i don't know you know the engine the you know james watt and the, and the uh, steam engine you would look under i suppose you would look under engine you wouldn't look under what uh, as you as you might um do now um you wouldn't look under technology although <laughs> the first volumes were also had themes as well so they, they would actually have a little break so you would get to d or e and then there would be a section on theology um and uh, it, it would just be a kind of an odd mix and they couldn't uh, they couldn't really decide and then as things got bigger they they went sort of alphabetical uh, alphabetical but there was quite a lot of objection to well this. one of one of the the most strident objectors was Samuel Taylor Coleridge exactly he thought this was an absolute nonsense um, and he, he, he came out with his own encyclopedia called uh, the Metropolitana, which didn't actually last very, very long. It did appear. Um, and you can still, you know, you can, you can still consult copies. And that was arranged on somatic lines. It was also very, very academic. It was very convoluted. It was very, uh, full of itself and quite hard to read, and it didn't it didn't catch on in the same way. You describe it as a publication as big, burdensome, and as doomed as the albatross. Exactly. I still find it charming to think that he spent so much time shaking his fist at the heavens on this issue. So, in your book, you you tried to have fun with the concept of ordering information in an alphabetical way. Well, I kind of thought, well, how, how do I, you know, I mean, how do I make a book about encyclopedias appealing to a modern audience? And I thought, well, one way of doing this is to use that, what I admit is obviously a gimmick, um, is, is, is to have it as in, in terms of, um, you know, an alphabetical as much as I could. It helped that Britannica was um, a, a B and that Wikipedia was a W. Um, but then, yeah, absolutely. I had kind of, you know, fun along the way. So uh, the entry for the for the, the big French encyclopedia was fa fabulous, because uh, that, that was uh, an, an, an F. And uh, the first one, you know, when you look down a, a kind of um, a, a yellow pages, A to Z, and you come to a, 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 a plumber, um, then I kind of thought I would have um, the word R. Here comes uh, Andrew Bell, who is uh, one of the first publisher. You've got a long list of the good and the great and the improbable who uh, contributed to uh, encyclopedias. We've got Newton and Babbage and Swinburne and GBS, Fleming, Rutherford, Niels Bohr. But I was delighted and puzzled to learn that Leon Trotsky wrote about Lenin. Yeah, um, in, um, in 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 I imagine quite complementary terms. I mean, you know, encyclopedias were were, were not uh, terribly uh, critical affairs. If if you had an entry in there, they they didn't they they tended not to delve into things that the author didn't like or um, any skeletons in the closet. But you're right, Philip. I mean, there a huge amount of celebrity authors where they they would try and. Um, sort of sell the wear, you know, sell their wares on that. In in all the adverts that, that appeared in the twentieth century, um, they would say, I, 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 "Absolutely, you know, Orville Wright was 
writing about Wilbur Wright and um, Helen Wills was writing about Lantaire Ennis. What's interesting is that they apparently all got paid the same or, or very similar. Um, so Even there was when no... Lillian Gish was writing about the movies. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, the, the it, because I think it was an honour to be in there, because if you were writing for the Encyclopedia Britannica, you were the world expert on this. And and so it was it was a, a real charm to be asked. So I think um, George Bernard Shaw was, got, got like 68 bucks for his article on um, socialism and, and Albert Einstein got well a little bit more but perhaps it was a bit uh, late one got got 86 86 dollars <laughs> 40 for his piece on space time sigmund freud marie curie alfred hitchcock the alumni are very impressive they are i mean in a way it was sort of window dressing for the botanica because they kind of felt well okay so uh we will give you um you know, um, Jonah Silk on uh, writing about inf infantile paralysis. But actually, we will also give you 100 people you've never heard of from, um, you know, from academia who, uh, who, who, who know as much as uh, Jonah Silk does about their particular area. What about the role of women in the history of encyclopedias, Simon? Yeah, not, not, <laughs> not a terribly honourable um, uh, history, I would say. So the very... In the very first Britannica, 1768, uh, the, the entry for uh, woman read in its entirety, the female of man see homo. So you then had to go back and read about men. Things did improve very, very gradually. So, uh, but but it, it, still in, in, in very questionable terms. So in, in the, the fourth edition, um, you had you you, you the, the Britannica editors got themselves in a real twist in about eighteen it must have been eighteen o one eighteen o two um, saying um, trying to distinguish between men and women and and saying such things I've got a quote here that the the man more robust is fitted for severe labour and for field exercise the woman more delicate is fitted for sedentary occupations and particularly for nursing children. So there we are. But um, what was kind of clear by about 1900 in particular was that the women were doing a huge amount of work. So the backroom staff, all the people doing all the admin, um, and quite a lot of the editing as well uh, were uh, women and, and, and un, unsung. Uh, it must be said. When the Encyclopedia Britannica ceased online printing in 2012, I must say my pacemaker almost blew a fuse. How has it fared in the digital world? Well, I mean, really, it's still a resource. Uh, you can um, join it for uh, about 70 English pounds. I don't know what the, the equivalent quite of that uh, would be in Australia, but it's it's... You, you you still get a lot of um, very, very reliable um, uh, information. Uh, again, a, a lot of kind of experts are writing. And you could say that actually, you know, if you wanted uh, the most trustworthy um, uh, information about a subject, Botanica is still a place to go. It does still exist. It does, of course, get 
um, just a squillions of the amount of um, cons consults that you know Wikipedia would get for two reasons. One, obviously, where Wikipedia is free, but also Wikipedia, it's constantly updated. Uh, I mean, updated every minute. Look, um, I, I have a problematic relationship with Wikipedia in terms of my own entry, which I find both inadequate and uh, inaccurate. But uh, I, like you, I dip into it on a daily basis and I pay my guilty my guilty tithe. Look, thanks for that, Simon. Fascinating. Simon Garfield, author and journalist. His latest is All the Knowledge in the World, the Extraordinary History of the Encyclopedia, published by Hachette. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.